episode 101, Eight Self-Destructive Processes and Emotional Intelligence. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trusclair, and today we're Dr. Diane Harner, PhD Perspective. Join 2017 and 2018 Podcast Awards nominated host as we get a behind the curtain look at all types of doctors and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. So happy to be back. This was actually the first interview I did after having a baby because, you know, I pre-did a bunch of interviews. And I'm happy to say the baby didn't cry. She was real calm. Uh, My wife took her on a walk and they came back and it was still fine. So really happy about that. And I think this week is going to be a good episode for you. So we're talking about emotional intelligence and different ways to hire people. One thing she said was to put them in a stressful situation and see how they respond. And she'll go into more of that. It was really a a fun part of the interview. Uh, Talk about how her neuroscience has bridged into counseling for mid and high level executives. We discussed stuff about like type A personalities, how to safeguard from burnout, procrastination. There's pluses and minuses to that. Let's figure that out. Intrinsic versus intrinsic motivations for yourself or staff. Uh, whips, millennials a little bit, not too negative actually. Uh, she did a good job answering that question and near the end of the interview. I think you'll enjoy the answer. Uh, we also go over a little bit about brain nutrition. If we're trying to build new pathways, if, if we're trying to maximize our learning, what can we do about that as far as sleep, as far as food, etc. And then lastly, she has eight criteria that she looks at when trying to counsel somebody or coach someone, everything from perfectionism, self-doubt, multitasking, etc. Okay, I think I gave you enough preview of what's going on. Let me know what you think about the new podcast logo. It's finally up. The new song. Give me your feedback. I always want it. Uh, Pinterest, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can find me again. Top of the website on the right. There's all the little buttons. You can just click that. Like me, friend me, follow me. And uh, I'll definitely reach out and talk to you as well. Okay. All the show notes can be found at a doctorsperspective.net slash 101. Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China in Brisbane, Australia, today we have got a neuroscientist plus a businesswoman. And she draws from, of course, neuroscience, anthropology, psychology, behavioral science. Because look, she wants you to understand your own behavior plus the behavior of others so that you can get better performance and engagement out of everything. Now, her expertise is through speaking, mentoring, workshops to build courage, resilience, agility, engagement, self-awareness. She has a uh, website. It's called clevermindsconsulting.com.au. We'll say it again later. But welcome to the show, Dr. Diane Horner, PhD. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. Absolutely. Well, look, we have a responsibility as doctors. We're supposed to be empathetic. We're supposed to know what's going on. We got to manage staff. We have to, there's just a lot going on. And we want to know about emotional intelligence today, how not to get burned out, What's the ways we can hire the best people and get the most out of them as well? I mean, that's just, that makes sense to me. But before we go into all of that, give us a little bit behind your background, where you are now, and and what's your day-to-day like? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've always been curious about um, people and why they do the things they do and also the human body and how it works. So um, from a very early age, I really understood that our brain was responsible for orchestrating everything we think, feel, say, and do. And so um, I really wanted to understand how the brain worked. This was on the backdrop of um, spending a lot of time in a home for mentally and physically handicapped children and seeing how when the brain doesn't function well, 
um, how that is expressed in, in thinking and behavior as well. I've also been very focused on serving people and helping people. So it's the backdrop of those two things that have really carried through my career um, in research and also in the corporate world. Uh, but now what I do is, uh, as you say, I do a lot of mentoring and speaking in workshops. And my aim is to help people become more self-aware and deliberate in their thinking and behavior so they can orchestrate their own success. Talk to us for a second. A PhD in neuroscience, that blows my mind. I mean, you know, doctors are doctors, but like <laughs> neuroscience, I mean, I remember taking a few classes and being like, wow, this can get intense. So how is it that you, I'm guessing there's lots of different ways that you can go in that field. Uh, for those who have no idea how you would even narrow that down, it might be considered maybe a career, like what you're talking about. What is some, some of the, like, like the two or three minute explanation of like, how do you figure this out? Yeah. So as you say, there are lots of different branches of uh, neuroscience and ranges from looking at the very tiny microscopic parts of the nervous system, like how synapses function, which are the gaps that allow our neurons to communicate right up to the cognitive and behavioral sciences that look at our our thinking and our behavior and, and what drives that. So when I first became interested in um, pursuing neuroscience as a career was actually in my honors year, just after I'd finished my undergraduate degree. And I was looking at the brains of um, boxers. So people had, who had been involved in boxing, I was looking at the injuries to the brain as a result of boxing and what causes what's called dementia pugilistica, which is known as punch drunkenness. Now, the interesting thing was that this punch drunkenness had also been seen in dwarfs um, that had been involved in dwarf throwing, and they had received the same um, or similar kind of injury. So what I was doing is comparing the brains of boxers to the brains of the dwarfs that also had this punch drunkenness and seeing what the similarities and the differences are. So that was my first uh, real foray into neuroscience, and from then I went on to look at how neurons find their way in the brain when they're developing. Uh, and then I went on to look at the front part of the brain that controls all of our cognition and personality and uh, looking to see the chemicals that are present in the front part of the brain. But ultimately, my PhD was looking at multiple sclerosis, which I think is a disease uh, that most people have heard of. So that's where the nervous system and the immune system interact. And, and that's what I did my PhD on. Since then, I've sort of moved away from the more sort of molecular uh, level of neuroscience and more into the cognitive and behavioral um, disciplines. Wow. That's, <laughs> you know, I have like respect for certain careers and like that just, it blows my mind because it's beyond like something that I would really be able to comprehend very well. I think it would take a lot of effort to figure all of that out. And wow. So, okay. When we're looking at, let's just, just jump right into, say, ourselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of us are type A personalities, I would say, as, as, as doctors, because they have to, you know, all the little T's got to be crossed. There's lots of different things. You want to be in control of the patient and, 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 your, and everything. Is there, like, drawbacks to that that you can find when it comes to, to, to managing patients or, or your own self when you're that really driven person? Mm. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges for doctors is that there is so much to know, so much knowledge um, that you have to acquire, and so much of your thinking and behavior needs to come really automatically. 
So in a crisis situation, your training really needs to kick in and you need, you know, ideas and solutions to come to you quickly. So that creates a kind of an automaticity in the way that we approach things. And that's actually what our brain wants to do. Um, our brain is an energy conserving organ. So whatever it can put down as a habit or a routine or an automated behavior, it will. Um, so that is useful when we need to think quickly. But the balance is also making sure that we stop and we check and we're deliberate in the way that we are thinking and behaving as well. And I think for doctors, that is the real balance that needs to be struck. Because if we approach every um, situation in a similar kind of way, we risk missing something. Mm, that is true. We, I think they always say, you see 100 horses a day, but you got to keep your eyes out for that zebra. Exactly. Because they look very similar. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, hiring is important. Some of mm -hmm. us have physician's assistants. Some of us have maybe nurse practitioners underneath us. And we all have front desk staff. When mm -hmm. we're talking about that, and we're talking about like emotional intelligence, are there certain skills that we're maybe looking for when we're hiring these types of people and a way to like find out those? Yeah. So my philosophy about hiring people is that um, skills and knowledge are incredibly important, but these can be taught. When it comes to hiring people, I think we should really place a lot of importance on attitude and also interpersonal skills, um, resilience, work ethic, um, the ability to get along with others, the ability to be flexible, um, and really test those and not just rely on an interview situation because we all know that we can prepare very, very well for an interview situation. So when we're hiring people, we need to develop um, exercises and activities that really push people into the places that they're uncomfortable because when people are uncomfortable, this is when they are less regulated in their behavior and those true behaviors can come forward. Like what? Interview, is there like a style of question that you should ask, like just kind of real world scenario that you might experience and just say, oh, that, that should throw them off guard and see what they do? Yeah. So um, I have a really great example of um, a test that I used to run when I was recruiting staff, and it was a time management test. And so I had 10 items. It's called the in-tray exercise. It's, it's quite commonly used. And there were 10 okay. items that needed to be um, prioritized in order of importance, and the next action item um, determined. And there was a specific time limit in order um, to achieve this task. And um, this one particular fellow I can remember very carefully, he was very confident in interview, you know, um, had all the right answers to all the questions. And I put him into this um, time management exercise, and he started mumbling to himself and kind of, rocking backwards and forwards in his chair saying, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. So oh. it's it's really interesting to see how when you strip away that mask that people put on, what what the true behaviors are that come forward. Wow. So at that point, you really got to use your gut about what are you seeing? Obviously, that would be a bad candidate. It's going to get stressful. Yeah, that's right. Because the ability to handle stress, particularly in the medical field, is absolutely critical. And if you have somebody who completely deconstructs in the face of stress, then that's obviously somebody um, who may not be appropriate for a, a role that, you know, is, is exposed to a lot of stressful situations. 
All right, good. So I'm hearing to start with, if you're going to hire somebody, brainstorm with some people, figure out some kind of stressful situation that you guys in your own clinic see every day. And at that point, make a scenario and might a couple scenarios, ask different questions to different uh, potential job offers and um, and just see what they do and see what they say. And then that's a really better way than just what's your strengths, what's your weaknesses. Throw them off guard. Okay. I like that. Now for a new doctor. Maybe even a new staff member. You're kind of going in. You kind of know what you're doing. But there's usually like a little bit of a lack of confidence. You have to fake it mm-hmm. till you make it. Is there a way to program your brain to kind of fake it faster? <laughs> you can actually have real true confidence. <laughs> I don't want to take two years if I can take three months. I don't know. Yeah, sure. So so those feelings of um, uncertainty and a lack of confidence are absolutely normal. And every single person has them. And the main reason for that is our brain is a prediction machine. We're always, it's always trying to figure out what the next step is and to develop those if-then statements. If I do this, then this will happen. But when we're put into new situations that we haven't seen before, we have to work with people that we don't know. We have to do tasks that we may not have done before. Our brain gets triggered by this because it can't run those if-then statements. It can't predict what is going to happen next. So my advice is that there will be discomfort and you kind of just have to lean into that and know that that will be there and know that it will also pass because the more we are exposed to these situations, the more memories and um, solutions that our memory, uh, our brain lays down and then we become more comfortable and it becomes more comfortable that it can predict what's going to happen next. You know, I heard a, uh, it was a veteran chiropractor. You know, it's all about your hands and, and manipulating the spine and different things. Mm. And one of his complaints, I think, with the new schools is that they don't get quite enough repetition. Mm. Like when he's like, when I used to teach, we would do setup. We would do, you know, one, two, three, four, five. You would do that and you might do that for 20 minutes every day before you start doing something else. And he's like, because if you don't have that automatic brain synapse, like you're going to struggle fat a lot longer than someone who has been doing that. Your skills aren't going to be quite as good. And that's what makes you your money as a chiropractor is mm. your adjusting skills. So it's a very, it's good to see that, uh, similarities in everything that we're talking about, whether it's a mental thing, hiring motivation, it's, it's consistency. Yeah. Being exposed to it. We are what we repeatedly do. So whenever we do something for the first time, we make new connections. Those connections um, will only become stronger if you reinforce those connections. And that's why they say practice makes perfect. The more times we engage in a task or a way of thinking or solve a certain problem in a certain way, the stronger these connections come. And then our brain starts to put those down as habits. Neuroplasticity, right? Correct, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Sometimes we we have an issue with staying motivated. Once it becomes a habit, all of a sudden it kind of gets boring. Like every now and then you get that weird case and you're like, yeah, that was fun. I had to think, I had to really use my brain. Is there a way to kind of stay motivated? Because I think that leads to burnout as well when you just kind of like, if I have to look at one more pair of eyeballs and fit their glasses, I'm going to just go crazy. Like, I don't see anything. I don't see glaucoma anymore. It's just like, I can't, this is so boring. Like, what do I, it, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. what can we do? Yeah. Well, I, I just um, read a great book about motivation recently. Um, and it's on my page, my resources page of my website. And it's called Addiction, Procrastination and Laziness. And it's by an oh, author boy. called Roman Gelperin. And uh, it talks about the, the three parts of um, any task we do, any job we do, and how they uh, each provide a certain amount of motivation. So the first part of it is called the activation energy, and that's the amount of energy that we need to actually engage in the task. 
So if there's a lot of activation energy required, then we may not be as motivated to do the task um, as if there was a lower activation. The second part right. is the task itself, and this is what you're talking about. So what we do is we think about a task in terms of how much pleasure or displeasure um, that it creates for us. And, of course, we're going to be more interested and motivated towards a task that brings pleasure to us as opposed to displeasure. Uh, and the third part of it is the consequences of the task, whether they are positive or negative. So these three things really uh, contribute to our motivation. When we do a task and it becomes very routine and habitual, what happens is the pleasure that we derive from doing that task goes down. And that's why there is a decrease uh, in motivation. So in order to keep um, engaging in the task, there's a certain amount of regulation that needs to go on, of course. We need to say, okay, we don't have the option to opt out here. This is my job. I <laughs> have to keep going. But some of the ways that you um, can increase the pleasure associated with the task is just changing the environment around you perhaps or maybe approaching it in a different way because at the end of the day, as much as our brain loves routine and habit, our prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of the brain, loves novelty. So it loves different things. And that's why when we see something that's unusual, our attention is automatically drawn to it. So if we increase the pleasure associated uh, with a task by introducing different things, changing the environment, changing the people that we, um, that we do the task with, even putting music on in the background can all work mm. to slightly increase the pleasure associated with the task and therefore maintain our motivation towards it. I was going to ask, if music, putting a new plant in the office yeah. or rearranging the room a little bit just to kind of like, okay, this is kind of new. Where did that put my scalpel? I forgot where that's at or something. Yeah, exactly. Changing the dialogue that you use when you greet patients, asking them different questions in different ways, um, involving uh, other staff members in your consultation uh, perhaps, you know, taking on students to teach them. All of these things can help just change up um, your routine a little bit to keep it interesting. Because I know uh, I was kind of going through a Pinterest rehaul. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever done anything on social media, sometimes if you go back to go through something or like, I'm going to take my blog and I'm going to revamp the last year of blog post. Oh, my goodness. Like you're saying, exciting factor is very low. <laughs> <laughs> But it could be very important if you didn't do anything very good for SEO or something like that. You're like, okay, I've got to figure this out. And so some of my little tricks, put some good music on, or sometimes I'll have, which is the bad way to do it, my little Netflix on the side. And But you know, you don't get much done at that point. So sometimes I'm just like, all right, just 30 minutes, and then you can reward yourself with a little TV. Yeah. And that way, over time, over a month, you'll have a lot of progress made. Yeah, that's Tricking perfect. It. I find chocolate always helps too. But um. The other thing is to remind yourself of the positive consequences that are associated with doing the task as well. And that can remind yeah. you why it's important to engage in it. Let's, let's go back to staff for a second. Mm. My buddy, he has lots of staff and there's always there's always something. It's, it's, you know, there's always something going on and he, he vents a little bit with me and I'm like, wow, that's, that's a lot of employees and stuff to deal with. Mm. Is there something that we can do to intrinsically motivate them to be happy and work hard versus just let's go have dinner or here's some Starbucks cards or something? The number one thing is that we have to understand what makes each and every individual in our, our team tick. And you ah. might have 10 people in your team and I bet you they will all be different in the way that they like to be motivated, that 
the way that they um, like to do a task. And what's really important to understand is that just because we like things done a certain way or we are motivated by certain things doesn't mean that everybody else is. And um, I often do a, a, a task in my workshops where uh, I ask people what um, their primary triggers are. So triggers like autonomy, certainty, connection, equality and status. And um, these are these are triggers that can put us into a threat state or into a reward state. And I ask people to say what their primary trigger is out of those five. And I go around the room and without fail, people will put their hand up for every single one. So different people will have different motivators as their primary trigger. And this is really important to understand because imagine that, um, you know, autonomy wasn't very important to me, but it was very important to you. And then I tried to tell you exactly what you needed to do, when you needed to do it, how you needed to do it, who you would do it with. That would be incredibly <laughs> triggering for you <laughs> and your motivation would be completely gone. And I'm wondering, what's the problem? because I don't care about autonomy. So this is the really, really important thing to understand is, is you know, what makes your people tick? What what are they after? What, what do they see as a reward? Some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by a public thank you. And, and that's the secret. And that's what I had to learn. And I learned that the hard way, actually. All right. I'm hearing Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> names on a piece of paper and i'm hearing possibly a private meeting like if you can't figure it out already from just you just completely unaware you might ask your office manager or you might have you your office manager and each staff individually and just have you could actually have probably a blunt conversation like hey we want to make sure everybody's happy what of these five you know however you want to word it but how are these five triggers which do you prefer mm -hmm. like which one would make you more happy at work like you want like what you just said do you want the autonomy just do what you want be creative do you want to be a sticker on a board with your name on it, employee of the month. And that way, like I said, you can do it and you'll know exactly what each person needs. Kind of like a spouse. I think a spouse is a good way to, like, if you're doing that with your spouse, you probably gonna have a better relationship than if you just, I'm buying you flowers and I don't yeah, care yeah. what else you want. That's what yeah, you're getting. Exactly. Like, that's not going to um, go well and, after And a while. you just touched on something really important, actually. You know, there, there is a lot of interest um, and everybody is talking about coaching. And having coaching conversations is so critical to developing an understanding of each individual in your team and understanding how to motivate and engage them. The, the, the trouble that we have is that we confuse coaching conversations with what are called work-in-progress conversations or WIPs for short. So work-in-progress conversations are about how are you going with that project? What resource do you need? Um, what happened when you spoke to this person on the phone? How are you going with this deadline? So it's all about tasks. It's all about ticking things off the list. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, and finding out where somebody is at with their work. Whereas coaching conversations are, are nothing to do with tasks and, you know, where you are in terms of a deadline. It's about how are you going? What can I do to help you? What, what do you want to do in, you know, the next six months or 12 months in order to be happy and satisfied in your role here. So we must make the distinction between these work in progress discussions and these coaching discussions. The coaching discussions um, are, are important as are the work in progress discussions, but we're not having enough of the coaching discussions. 
sounds like the coaching ones are almost like water cooler. You see him alone in the break room and you're like, oh, hey, let's have a quick conversation. Whereas the whips, mm. Monday morning, mm. every morning, yeah. we have 30 minutes. That's right. Everybody and the thing report. about coaching is it doesn't have to be a, okay, let's okay. sit down for an hour and talk about you and <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> it can be those very <laughs> informal, casual conversations where you just swing by someone's desk and say, hey, how are you going? How, how are things for you at the moment? Can, you know, can I do anything to help you? I think it was, I was very lucky. One of my staff, they just wanted a little bit more time off at lunch. They, they had like this Bible study they really wanted to attend and, and it was always at lunch. And I was like, why don't you, yeah, we're not that busy right now on this day, like whenever you want to do it. It's like, yeah, just take an extra mm-hmm. hour or whatever. And she was super stoked and it didn't cost me anything extra. Like it wasn't like a $5 raise. It was just, hey, I just need yeah. an extra hour at lunch. It's like, amazing. That's great. But so many bosses seem to be anti, like work starts at eight. I don't care. You have to be here. Even if you're not busy until 830 you have to be here at eight. And it's like, be flexible a little bit if you want to keep this employee. Yeah. And in the new world of work, we have the capacity to be flexible, which is really great. And the next generation of um, employees will expect that. So as yeah. as leaders, we need to become very flexible in the way um, that we approach our, our work. This is a non-prepped question for you at all, as some of these probably were. They, millennials are getting a bad rep. <laughs> about a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. is this kind of like stemming from the millennials needing to be quote coddled a little bit more than us older folks or is this just a good thing that these businesses like it's just the progression that's actually a benefit and it's not like we have to change to the employees mm-hmm. yeah so the biggest impact on the millennial and subsequent generations has been technology in the digital era of course but you know what i think you know, our generation, the generation before us was probably talking about our generation and saying, oh, you know, they're they so demanding and they don't want to do hard work. And so, you know, I, I, everybody's got a college degree, <laughs> yeah. think they know better than the guy that's been on the job for 30 years. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's, um, you know, it's a similar dynamic, but we're just talking about different things now. So now we're talking about, um, you know, millennials having very high expectations and, and always being on their devices and communicating digitally. But, you know, when, when we were going through, there was probably a whole a different set of circumstances um, that were, you know, different from the generation before us. So, I mean, women wanted to work and stuff and have equal rights. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Golly. Huh. That was trying to break the mold. <laughs> you know what? And the millennials and the Gen Zers will be having similar conversations about the generations that come after them as well. <laughs> That's fun. I remember earlier you were you were talking about like we we're talking about all these brain changes and, and motivation and everything. This might not be in your wheelhouse, but nutrition. Mm. Is there anything nutritionally that we could any supplements or anything that you can take that could help uh, build connections faster or manage stress a little bit better or anything like that? Like I said, it may not be your wheelhouse, so feel free not to answer. Mm. So um, the three things that are absolutely critical to um, brain and mental health are diet, sleep, and exercise. Now we hear about them all the time, <laughs> of course. Um, sleep in particular is incredibly critical because when we sleep, we process a lot of information, but it's also when our brain cleans house. So mm-hmm. if we don't give our brain the opportunity to, to get rid of uh, any toxins that are left over from the day's processing, um, these can build up and this can result in poor mental health and also disease as well. So you know, sleep is absolutely critical. Exercise is important as well. So upregulation of those, you know, happy hormones and endorphins as well. And it's been a really strong association between um, 
exercise and decreasing the risk of Alzheimer's disease um, as well. When it comes to nutrition, we all know that we need to have um, a a balanced diet. But one of the things that um, people may not know is that the vitamins and minerals that we eat are responsible for the creation of the neurotransmitters, the the chemicals that are in our body, so the proteins that we eat, the, the enzymes. And if we don't have enough of the building blocks of the chemicals that make our brain function properly, this is when we can also experience poor mental health. So things like zinc and magnesium are are really important uh, in our diet for the creation of neurotransmitters, particularly transmitters like um, uh, serotonin and dopamine, which are the the neurotransmitters which make us feel good. So if we don't have the building blocks to create those neurotransmitters, that's when we'll experience poor mental health and an inability to regulate our emotions um, and we'll be more susceptible to depression and anxiety. So two follow-ups then. When we come into nutrition, a lot of us probably don't have great diets. Is it just better to supplement with something, like take a multivitamin of some sort or an organic food multivitamin? That way, no matter what your, your diet is, you still have the building blocks every day. Is that shown to be very helpful? Mm. Um, if your diet is inadequate, that's when some kind of supplement will be useful. The, the, the first option is always to have that balanced diet and get everything naturally from um, meat and fruit and vegetables. Eat some vegetables. Yeah. Because the thing about taking supplements is that if you don't need them or if you don't have other minerals um, on board that help to metabolize other minerals, they just go completely through your system and they don't do ah. you any good. So if you're not um, eating the right foods to enable the, the metabolism and the use of those supplements, then there's no point. Okay. It's kind of like having the proper ratio of calcium, magnesium, copper to zinc. Yeah. How much selenium do you need? They all got to play together. If you don't have enough of one or the other, the, the system won't actually complete the cycle. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And as far as sleep goes, are we talking... Uh, I know some people are like, I can sleep on four and I feel good. Some people are like, dude, I got to have nine. Should we aim for like one to three REM cycles, whatever that means to that person? Or what's the what's the rule these days? Yeah. So uh, with regards sleep, it's different for everybody. Some people don't need as much sleep as other people. So the general rules um, about sleep are the earlier in the evening you sleep, the better quality it is. So if you go to bed at nine versus midnight, you'll have a better quality sleep. That's what the research is showing. Um, Hmm. So the other thing um, that has been shown um, is to be good in terms of the way that you manage your sleep is you've had enough sleep when you wake up naturally. So whenever we set an alarm to pull ourselves out of sleep, we may interrupt a REM cycle or we may be waking ourselves up before our brain has had the adequate amount of time it needs to rest and replenish all the resources. Wow. So it sounds like I should probably just wake up more early. <laughs> I'm, I'm a late sleep. I'm, I go to bed late because <laughs> I just, kids asleep, let's get some stuff done. Yeah. And the alarm always wakes me up. So maybe I need to try to switch it and just see if my body actually could wake up after a few days at four or five o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I used to be a night owl myself. um, And then I started to get up very early in order to exercise. And so my Mm. whole sleep has shifted forward about three hours. Um, So I still get the same amount of sleep, but I'm just shifting it earlier on. And you know what I really notice if I go to bed late? It's so much harder to, to get up 
uh, the next morning. And the times that I know I haven't had enough sleep is A, I'll wake up feeling tired, but B, I will have relied on my alarm clock to wake me up. Whereas usually my body clock will wake up maybe even a couple of minutes before my alarm goes off. Huh. Mm. That's impressive. Okay. <laughs> All right. I don't know if anybody else has a challenge, but it's been issued, <laughs> feels like. So maybe I need to try that. It's, it's, um, it's such a challenge when you get used to being a night owl yeah. to, to change the habits and change your routine to just go to bed. Yeah. So and the thing that we need to remember is that change is a process. It's not an event. So you just have to stick with it. And, you know, maybe the first couple of nights that you try to go to bed at 9.30 instead of 12.30, you might lie there for a little while <laughs> until you drop off to sleep. <laughs> Um, but you know, there. Turn off your phone, read a book. Yeah, reading puts me to sleep in about two pages. I love to read and I'm a, an avid consumer of books, but as soon as I open a book in bed, I'm out. <laughs> Gone. Yeah. So, yeah, things like, like reading a book or putting on some kind of relaxation music can also help to sort of lull you into that state of relaxation to make it easy to go to sleep. We're going to switch gears. You obviously have a business. People don't do podcasts just for fun usually. <laughs> so let's transition into a little bit of like, what kind of your ideal clients are you looking for? What are they most struggling with? And it's kind of a three-part top one or two tips you could give that it could instantly master. Like if they could just change this, they're on their way to a better them. Mm, okay. So um, most of the clients I see mid to senior executives and there's usually... Uh, something going on for them. They're, they're stuck for some reason or another. I don't usually get people sitting in front of me where everything is going well. Now, um, something that I haven't shared is that um, I'm also just completing my master's in counseling as well. So my oh, yes. offering has a sort of a really holistic approach to it as well. So not only looking at the, the career and the corporate um, performance, but also being able to look at those more personal aspects um, that influence us as well, because let's be honest, the the line between work and um, home and family life is getting increasingly blurred. So the three things that I find are really um, challenging my clients are perfectionism, uh, procrastination, and self doubt. So um, the one thing that I wanted to say about self-doubt, actually, and, you know, this is all the imposter syndrome um, type of discussion, is that men have this too. This is not just the domain of women. So um, I think, you know, in the, in the larger media conversation, the imposter syndrome is usually centered around women. But I really wanted to make the point that um, a lot of male clients that I see feel this as well. And I think perhaps it's just that they're not talking about it as openly as women do, that it's not getting um, the attention that I think, you know, it needs. So uh, the way that I address this with my clients, actually, is I've developed a, a diagnostic, uh, which is based on the research um, of Dr. Theo Saucedes. And what I look at is um, subconscious habits of thought that get in the way of goal pursuit and that have an impact on our thinking and behavior. So I look at um, eight different subconscious habits of thought. So there's self-doubt, uh, perfectionism, impatience, multitasking, uh, rigidity, procrastination, negativity, and conformity. And so this is the first thing that my mentoring clients do as they complete this diagnostic. And, and what this does is it provides the platform for the discussion 
about um, these different blockers that can get in our way. And usually what I find is that there are, a, a, you know, maybe two or three that sort of poke out above the rest as having an impact um, on the on our performance and, and how we're thinking and behaving. Um, and across the board, the three that are coming up the most are perfectionism, procrastination and self-doubt. But I see all of them in different people um, at different times as well. With regards to perfectionism, um, there's two sides to perfectionism, actually. So there's positive perfectionism, which is the good stuff. It's what, you know, drives our ambition and and drives us to do a really good job. Um, but then on the flip side, there's the negative perfectionism. And this is the one that gets in the way. This is our fear of making mistakes. So this is what gets in the way of change. This is what gets in the way of us taking risks and doing things that are scary. Um, and this is also what impacts our productivity in that it makes us hold on to, pro- to projects for too long hmm. because we're checking and rechecking to make sure that there are no mistakes because above all, we, we um, appreciate the positive evaluation by others. Yeah. And that then leads to procrastination, of course. We leave things to the last minute. Last minute we, we put off doing tasks because we are concerned um, about the evaluation that might come as a result. Isn't that weird that we do that? <laughs> the, the fear that we have is still not motivating us to get the job done well, mm-hmm. to have that bad review at the end. And when you procrastinate, that's generally what ends up happening. So there is this famous curve called the Yerkes-Dodson curve, and it looks at our arousal and performance. What we see is that as our arousal increases, so does our performance. And until we get to our peak performance and if arousal continues or stress continues beyond that point, then we fall off the other edge and our performance decreases. So most of us sit on the left-hand side of that peak. And in order to get to peak performance, we create some arousal stress in order to get us there. And that's what procrastinators can do. So in order to get to peak performance, they leave things to the last minute to create that arousal stress to get them up into peak performance. I I am a card-carrying procrastinator (laughs) and I know this because this is what I do. I leave everything to the last minute. You know what? I've tried to do things early, but I just can't step up into that focus, you know, that flow unless I have some, some arousal stress. So artificial deadlines don't really work because you know they're artificial? (laughs) they can work if you can sufficiently trick yourself into believing them okay that would be the hardest part i think (laughs) (laughs) Uh, at these days there's probably some website where like you could wager some money on it or if you don't submit it then you you lose the money i mean there might be something like that for all those procrastinators out there i mean i'm kind of with you i don't know if i'm a card holder but it's definitely i see it in myself at times so yeah. And this is where accountability can be really useful in setting milestones that you have to meet. So breaking up the task into smaller chunks and having small parts ah. of the task due at, at certain times along the way. And this is what they do in schools these days. So um, I have a teenage son and there are always milestones for submitting drafts. So it's forcing them to do the work early rather than leave it to the last minute and have a poor performance as a result. 
Because I guess there's certain things in life where that deadline could still be 60 days out, but you know, I can't just do this in a weekend. It literally is a Mm. long process. So Mm. the stress period doesn't have to be like studying for the test the night before. It could be a a 60-day stressor that motivates you. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And the, the other thing that's really important about that stress response curve is making sure you understand when you have pushed the stress and you are beyond that peak performance and you've slipped off the other side of the curve. And that's when we need to put into place the stress management uh, approaches, you know, making sure we take brain breaks, making sure that we spend some time with friends, that we're getting diet, sleep and exercise in order to reduce that stress back down to an acceptable level again so we can get to peak performance. When you said those, you have eight. Mm. Some people say, hey, these are my strengths. Let's focus on these. Some people say these are my my weaknesses, let's make these stronger. Is there a way that you kind of determine if you should focus more on some of these positives versus negatives or mm, yeah. does it kind of depend on what the person's actually struggling with? Yeah, that's right. It's very situational. So any kind of self-report diagnostic um, is largely about what is going on for people at that very moment. And uh, So this is why uh, a, a personal one-on-one debrief is really important because you've got to contextualize the results. So... If somebody's showing that, you know, rigidity is is coming up as a as a really potent um, uh, influence at that time, because it could be because they are going through an immense amount of change, and they are they're being triggered by that, and they're anxious by that. They want to try and hang on to their routine and hang on to habits that they've got, so they're being more rigid in the way they're responding to people. So having the is incredibly important in terms of contextualizing what's going on for people. That's true, because you said mid-level to high-level executives, mm-hmm. so they very well could have a divorce going through, mm-hmm. or they find out their kid has some kind of special needs that's requiring a lot more time at home than they thought, and that's infecting their business. And so all of those things play in, and once they figure that out, everything just kind of mellows out. Yeah, exactly. It's not often that somebody is um, in front of me and they're having challenges at work where there isn't something else going on in the background that needs to be addressed in progress as well. And this is where the counseling aspect work really um, works well. I like that. Very good. Well, well, Doc, Dr. Horner, we're getting close to the end here. Uh, what are you finding or what do you see happening in the next five years that we should pay attention to and, and the trends out there? Yeah, particularly with regards um, neuroscience and people becoming uh, aware um, of their own drive own behavior and wanting to understand themselves a little more. There's, a, there's lots of technologies that are uh, becoming quite commonplace in the market now. So the first is the first brain-machine interfaces. So what these machines do are they translate neuronal information into commands um, that are capable of driving software or hardware. So we're moving to this AI kind of space and this is something that's... Um, uh, Elon Musk is developing products called um, Neuralink, which is all about basically driving software and hardware with with our brainwaves, with, with neuronal information. So that's one area that I think we will see a lot of development uh, in the next five to ten years. Um, but the other is the area of neurofeedback. So this has been around for a, a couple of years now and is mostly the domain of clinics right now. But as this technology gets better and better and and is further researched, what I think will happen is that these will become 
consumer devices. And there are some consumer devices out there. And what neurofeedback does is it allows people to see their brain waves as they're happening and then control them. So do um, exercises that regulate their, their brain waves so they can see that in real time. And so oh. what I think will happen is that we will have these in our home. We will be able to put them on and be able to, to watch what our brain is doing in real time and then control the brain waves in order to, you know, regulate behaviours, regulate emotions. So you could even, if someone's finding that uh, they're watching a lot of, I don't know, old gangster movies or like really violent stuff and they just find themselves being more angry at work and they're noticing themselves being more short-tempered, mm. potentially they could hook themselves up, watch the show and be like, oh, wow, this is really firing off all those areas. Mm. And then you put on something else more calm and you're like, oh, okay. So maybe this has had an impact on my life that I didn't want to admit. Yeah. So when uh, in the example that you use when you're feeling angry or, or anxious, what you can then do is practice relaxation techniques and you can see them working in real time to change the structure of your brain waves. So it kind of gives that little bit of evidence behind, you know, a, a lot of um, approaches that we, we already know about in terms of stress reduction and relaxation. It, it gives us something to believe in, I guess. Yeah. Are you a fan of meditation then? Uh, I practice mindfulness um, every morning, actually. And I think when people hear the word mindfulness, um, images come to mind of, you know, people sitting around in cross-legged positions with their hands on their knees <laughs> saying mantras. <laughs> um, and I just want to say it doesn't have to be like that. So mindfulness can be very easily accessible. So for me, what mindfulness is, is sitting out on my back deck with a cup of tea in the morning before my family gets up and just listening to the birds, watching the trees, feeling the warmth of the cup of tea. Because what mindfulness is really is being in direct experience with your senses. So seeing, smelling, hearing, feeling, tasting, because that brings us to this very moment. And it's about being present in the moment um, that underpins mindfulness. Because when we think about it, the things that we get stressed about and the things that we get anxious about are generally what is going to happen in the future or what has already happened in the past that, that we're reliving again. But um, it's mm. not often that we stress about or are anxious about what is going on right in this very minute because in this very minute we have absolute control. That's really good. The last question and I think is a good way to end it is, do you have any books that you would recommend to people? Mm, yes, I do. Um, the book that I recommend to my clients more than any other book is a book called Switch. And it's by um, brothers called Chip and Dan Heath. And essentially it's about change. And it's about making changes when change is hard. And change is absolutely constant and is going to be a part of our lives for the rest of our lives. And the thing about change is that it's becoming faster and faster and faster. So once we get used to something, the landscape shifts and then we have to change again. So um, in this book, Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, it talks about um, how to engage with change, what is behind resistance to change and strategies about how to engage with change more easily. Oh, very good. Thank you so much. That's also on the resources page of my website. If um, yeah, if That was definitely going to be the next question is how can people get in touch with you? And I'd almost forgot Y'all, her website, A, it's good. It looks good. 
And B, she has a resource page with more books than I think you could possibly um, read in one year, potentially. But they run the gamut from like, uh, what is it? Her brain, his brain, to switch to all kinds of different um, topics that I think you would at least find two or three books at least mm. that you'd want to go out and buy on Amazon mm. or wherever you buy books. Yeah. Right. So the books on my, um, my resources page on my website um, are all books that I have read and, and that are in the theme of um, neuroscience or performance or engagement or self-awareness. And um, whenever you click on the book, it will take you directly to the Amazon page. So you don't have to go searching. Just click on the book and it will take you right there. Ah, perfect. Yes. That's a good way to do it. Oh, what was that website again? Clevermindconsulting.com.au. Don't forget that AU, y'all. It won't show up. That's right. <laughs> that was one thing I never realized. Other countries had their own little designation. I was like, I thought everything was just .com <laughs> until you move and you're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> you get out of the United States and then I was like, oh, look at that. There's like a whole web, web world for just the country. Yeah. <laughs> People can also contact me uh, on LinkedIn as well, Dr. Diane Hanna. And uh, I, I write uh, and contribute content to LinkedIn quite regularly. So if you'd like to stay up to date on what's happening in the world of neuroscience. That's it. That's where I found you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been very good. And uh, I do hope that you'll get some LinkedIn requests and potentially some kind of gigs from this. So I, I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Justin. It's been fun. I really want to take a second and say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you haven't left a review on your favorite listening app, please go ahead and do that. One thing I've realized, I've been putting out a lot of links all over Instagram, Facebook, this podcast itself. And if you ever change a link or shut a website down, all those links are now gone and dead. So I just want you to know, if you're listening to some of these episodes and I mentioned a link and it's gone, just head on over to a doctorsperspective.net and you're probably going to find that thing you're looking for on the top menu. Search around and I'm sure you'll find it. All the books you can find there, acupuncture book with no needles, the free chapters you can download, the 360 degree health from exercises, stretches, financial health, what is chiropractic, and the free chapters over there, t-shirts, resources, and we even have a financial support site now. It's just a doctorsperspective.net slash support. There's one-time support. There's monthly support. Go ahead over there and check it out. Something that I'm offering right now with the needless acupuncture, if you buy the book, you also get the electric acupuncture pin for free as a bonus. And that electric acupuncture pin helps you not only stimulate the points stronger, but helps you locate the points as well. So that's a huge plus. And then with the uh, Today's Choices, Tomorrow's Health book, I'm offering a bonus of a uh, one-hour, one-on-one uh, coaching session to go along with the purchase of that book. Actually, there's three different bonus packages if you head to a doctorsperspective.net slash no needles. It's getting close to the end of the year. Are y'all ready for the 2018 top 10? I mean, it's too early right now, but it's going to be here before you know it. That will be available for download later on, just like the 2017 is now. You just heard a great guest implement one thing, make your practice and personal life as best as it can be. We just went hashtag behind the curtain. I hope you will listen and integrate what some of these guests have said. By all means, please share across your social media, write a review, and if you go to the show notes page, you can find all the references 
for today's guest. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.